Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Passion and Truth is the title of today's program with Dr. John Newfeld, continuing in our series, The Progress of the Gospel, from Romans chapter 9 to 11. So let's begin today by turning in our Bibles to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. The story is told of an unemployed executive who answered an intriguing job ad for a regional zoo. The human resources manager explained that the zoo's gorilla had died, and it was cheaper to hire someone to dress in a gorilla suit than to go out and get another gorilla. Well, the man was desperate for a job, so he took it. And the first day on the job, he realized this really wasn't so bad. I mean, he paced the floor, he ate peanuts and bananas that were thrown at him. Feeling a little more comfortable, he began thumping his chest. The next day, he began to even be more bold, and he started swinging from a rope tied to a tree. But then, disaster struck. As he swung, he suddenly lost his grip and fell right into the lion's den next door. He was terrified, jumped to his feet, and he panicked, and he began to shout, Help! I'm a man in a gorilla suit! And in an instant, the lion was upon him, and through the lion's mouth, he heard the voice of a man, Shh! If you don't shut up, we're all going to lose our jobs. Well, do you know that many people suspect that the world is full of phonies, politicians who lie, preachers who rip you off, police officers who take bribes, and doctors who are just in it for the money. In other words, they're all in it for themselves only. And that's why whenever we see genuine zeal or genuine passion, we just have to sit up and take notice. Zeal speaks of someone who has a passion for something apart from personal advantage. Because words like authenticity and zeal and passion and an all-embracing vision, all of these words and concepts are impressive when we find them in someone. But on the other hand, if you think about it, all those words can be rightfully applied to a terrorist. Terrorists are often not phonies. They, they believe they have zeal. But we also know that the same thing, zeal, led a woman like Mother Teresa to give her life to the poor on the streets of Calcutta. So what do we make of religious passion or zeal? It's always tempting to allow zeal or passion and charisma to supersede things like truth and wisdom and humility. And whenever that happens, we're in danger of not only shipwrecking our faith, but of becoming arrogant and condescending towards others and even becoming enemies of God. But in truth, we don't need to decide between truth and zeal. We really can have both. We've been studying Romans 9 to 11, and it takes very little study to notice the passion of the Apostle Paul. All three chapters display his deeply held passions. Start again with chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, he writes. He's speaking about the fact that the majority of Israel has rejected Christ and how that affects him emotionally. And then beginning in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Again, his deep belief that no one can ever be done with the Jewish people. In all three of these important chapters in which Paul tells how God is bringing the gospel to the world, he goes back to Israel over and over again. 
Paul may be a missionary to the Gentiles, but he has never ceased loving his people and earnestly praying for them. Now, in this study, we have noticed two reasons for this. On the one hand, Paul can be defined in the same way that John Knox was defined so many years later. Knox, you'll remember, in his passion for his own Scottish people, prayed this way, God, give me Scotland or I die. And in some way, that same sentiment is rightly applied to Paul. As a faithful Jew, he simply can't detach himself from his people. But in another sense, what what Paul feels for Israel is so much greater than what Knox could have felt for the Scottish people. For Paul is a biblicist, and as a man of Scripture, he knows that Israel is central to God's redemptive plans for the world. In Genesis 17, verse 7, God is speaking to Abraham and says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. I mean, that word sounds, well, everlasting. There can be no end to this agreement that God has with the natural descendants of Abraham. Or consider how that gets affirmed over and over again in the Bible. In Psalm 105, verses 7 to 10, it says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. See, Scripture sees no end to God's dealings with Israel. Paul, as an informed Jewish rabbi, is more than aware of those scriptures, and even though the bulk of his missionary work has been bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, there still remains in him a passionate zeal for Israel that will not and must not die. Now, from that, what are we, and I'm assuming that the vast majority of my listeners are Gentile followers of Jesus, what are we to make of this passion? And I've said it in the past that it is a mistake to translate this passion into the present-day politics of the Middle East. What I have said is not to be seen as an endorsement for a specific view of how Israel and the Palestinians should work out their difficulties, for example. See, I'm persuaded that the land promises that are given to Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled, but in the millennium. And those views must not reflect what we want to see today when it comes to the relationships that Israel might have with Syria and Jordan and the other nations. You see, for believers in Jesus, our first loyalty, after our loyalty to Christ, is our loyalty to fellow believers who belong to the one universal church with us. So let me be plain, and it pains me that what I'm about to say is controversial, for it should not be at all. I have a greater loyalty to a Palestinian who loves Jesus than to a Jewish person who does not. The global people of God are my first passion, and that's a biblical mandate, and it was for Paul as well. But, and this is crucial, that does not exempt me as a Gentile Christian from having a special love for the people of Israel, even those who reject Jesus. After all, were it not for Israel, I would have no faith. I and all Gentile Christians with me owe to the Jewish people an infinite debt of gratitude. Every prophet who wrote the Bible was Jewish, and our Lord and Savior lived and died as a Jew. 
God chose the Jewish people through whom he would bring the gospel to the whole world. It is therefore, I think, a debt that Gentile Christians have to Israel that we will never be able to repay. And for that reason, I suggest that we all, as Gentile believers, commit to three important things in relationship to the Jews. First, that we would have a love for the Jewish people. And second, that we would have a commitment to praying for them. And that includes praying for her safety and security in a world that is often hostile to them. And third, that we would long for, like Paul, for the salvation of Israel. Now, we're going to say more about that when we get to chapter 11. But that must be our passion. So I think we're ready now for Romans 10 to 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, please notice that Paul's statement is clear, that they may be saved. See, I say that because there are teachers today who are going to argue that the Jews have a special covenant with God and that they can be saved under that covenant and that they do not need Christ. Paul flatly denies that. He is convinced that salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone. And that's true for both Jews and Gentiles. There are not two ways to God, but there is but one. The apostles of our Lord made it clear in Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's true for both Jews and Gentiles alike. But there's another thing that we need to see here, and I think it's often missed. I think once we rightly understand the gospel and understand the nature of the church, we get this deep sense that something as of yet is incomplete in the church. If the Bible tells us that the church of the living Savior is a marvelous new man, this new humanity, this new race made up of Jews and Gentiles, it is right for us to long for this. And as of yet, the Jewish component is the great missing part of this church. We long for a day like Paul, when the great host of the Jews would come to fellowship with the Gentiles under the banner of Jesus Christ. More Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld when we come back. Right now, a reminder that you can pre-order Back to the Bible Canada's 2017 Bible Scripture Calendar entitled Defining Moments of Our Faith Today. This year's calendar celebrates the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. With incredible pictures of significant European locations, along with inspirational quotes from primary figures of the day. You'll be engaged by both the beauty of the calendar and the historic importance of the Reformation to the Protestant Church. And of course, there is always the central benefit of having Dr. Neufeld's one-year Bible reading plan. So call today to pre-order your copy. The first one is free for each household. So call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. Let's read Romans 10, 1-2 again. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And it's here that Paul puts his finger on the chief reason why the Jews in Paul's day had rejected Christ. 
all true spirituality must consist in both zeal and knowledge, but Israel at the time of Paul had only one of these. It is this lack of balance that had caused them to miss the gospel. But what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that the Jews were simply ignorant? Well, let's examine that for just a while. Those who study Judaism at the time of Christ will point out that the Jews had the highest literacy rates in the ancient world because not only did the nobility read, so did everyone in Israel. And Paul himself knew this because that was his experience. Listen to how he described himself in Galatians 1 verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, please notice that advancement in Judaism is tied to the knowledge of the traditions of the fathers. And from the sayings of the Jewish fathers, we get an insight into what growing up was like for young Jewish boys. At five years old, scripture, they said. At 10 years, Mishnah, they said. At 13, the commandments. At 15, Talmud. At 18, marriage. At 20, the pursuits of business. In other words, long before you ever got to figuring out your career, you knew the text of Scripture and your entire education was related to it. Now, I admire that. By the way, if you want to know the commandments by 15, as all Jewish boys were expected, the Pharisees had, as I had pointed out, cataloged every single command in the law, and they argued that there were 613 commands, 248 of them were positive, and 365 were negative. The next step was to learn the hedge around the law, which, for instance, when it came to the Sabbath alone, there were 39 principles that you had to learn in order to keep the Sabbath. This all children were required to know. G.H. Box tells us about what happened in the synagogues. Let me read it to you. The synagogue system created an environment where the sacred writings became a spelling book, the community, a school, religion, an affair of teaching and learning. Piety and education became inseparable. Whoever could not read was no true Jew. The synagogue served as a house of worship on the Sabbath and as a school during the rest of the week. Sometimes houses of instructions were separate from the actual synagogue building. It is said by the time of Jesus, 480 synagogues existed in Jerusalem and each of them had a school. The brightest students were allowed to further their studies, perhaps becoming scribes or honored rabbis. On the Sabbath, the scriptures were read and then expounded to the flock. It was not unusual for adult males to be called upon to read the scriptures and give a brief lesson, end quote. In other words, if I were to use any words to describe the Jews of Paul's day, ignorant does not come easily to mind. Now, you contrast that today, and I'm ashamed to say it. But we have literally thousands of children raised in evangelical Christian homes who will reach the age of 20 and have not even read their Bible through one time, nor have learned the central doctrines of the Christian faith. Ask the average high school grad what it is that is found in the book of Colossians or to define and defend the Trinity, and you'll often get a blank stare. Meanwhile, they have watched thousands of movies and are familiar with thousands of more websites. Well, you get the idea. If anyone is ignorant, it's us and not the ancient Jews. You know, there was once a day in Canada when there were hundreds of Bible schools that dotted the Canadian landscape, and almost all Christian kids, graduates from school, would attend them for either one to four years, doing nothing but studying the Scripture. 
They were taught that university and trade schools would teach them how to make a living, but that these Bible schools would teach them how to build a life, moving to their career. But this tradition has all but disappeared as thousands of our students today descend on university campuses and trade schools, learning things that will cause them to lose their faith, but to a large degree. They had no knowledge of their faith at the outset. I just believe at some point in time, God will give a vision to some evangelical leader or leaders that will form the basis of renewing and reviving a vibrant historic evangelicalism that will capture the education of a new generation of lay people and teachers. One of the passions we have here at Back to the Bible is to reignite an informed approach to the Scripture. And since Paul was raised in this environment, was among the brightest and the best of an impressive lot, how in the world can he talk about a zeal without knowledge? Well, part of the answer to that is found in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. I mean, there Paul tells a largely Gentile church, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, he says, but love builds up. See, in the early church, idols were everywhere, and so it became standard Christian teaching in which Christians were taught what idols were and how to respond to them. That was good knowledge. You, you needed it to learn to be faithful. And yet, says Paul, there is a kind of knowledge that can lead to improper zeal. You can become puffed up by the knowledge that you have if that knowledge is not mitigated by love and humility. Now, in part, that might be what Paul means in verse 2, zeal without knowledge. He might mean arrogance without love and humility. This is what led many of the Jews in Paul's day to be immersed in the Old Testament and to ignore Jesus. But there's more. Look now at Romans 10 verse 3. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, up till now, the entire book of Romans has had as its theme the righteousness of God or the righteousness that comes from God. God demonstrates his righteousness on the cross. And furthermore, righteousness is offered to all who believe as a free gift. We can do nothing to earn or deserve it. It's given by grace. In contrast, many of the teachers of Israel were completely ignorant of this free and undeserved grace. So, for instance, the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says, So you find that our father Abraham became heir of this and of the coming world simply by, the Midrash says, the merit of faith. For many of the rabbis in Paul's day, obedience and law-keeping and even faith itself were merits or things you did that earned your favor and your standing before God. But in the cross, we find the exact opposite. The message of the cross so destroys our desire for ego satisfaction by portraying us as sinners in the need of the gift of righteousness, a righteousness we cannot attain on our own. And so the righteousness that God offers is a righteousness that forces us into humility. Any righteousness that does not have a deep-seated understanding of how we are reprobates, lawbreakers, and unacceptable before God is an attempt, says Paul, to establish your own righteousness. In my last message, as we looked at it, we saw that there were, in fact, two different ways of approaching the law of God. 
One way was to look at the law from the vantage point of merit-based religion. That is to say, if I do the commands, then I will have achieved what God has desired for me, and in response, God is obligated to do something for me that is to bless me. This, we saw, is called merit-based religion. And as we saw, according to Jesus, hookers and druggies and scam artists have a greater chance of entering into the kingdom than those who are hooked on merit-based religion. Why? And this is the key. Merit-based religion is always arrogant and carries with it a fierce pride that simply will not go away. And that, says Paul, is why Israel of his day had a zeal for God, but it was not based on knowledge. And we, my dear listener, can at all points become like them. Unless we, after learning the faith, are compelled towards grace and humility and not works, unless I'm willing to say that I bring nothing to the table, but Christ brings everything to the table, unless we renounce all reliance on our works and our reason for pride and say with Paul, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross until that's the case, I am so far from the gospel of Jesus Christ. John, I think sometimes we're under the impression that, you know, all this knowledge that we can gain can actually lead to arrogance. But I don't think that's what the study of the scriptures is about. This knowledge of knowing God's word is not about arrogance, is it? No, in fact, uh, when we really come to know the God who is in the Bible and what he offers us through the cross, all the knowledge in the world makes us more humble. And you can almost tell you're doing it wrong if, if um, you have a condescending attitude towards others or you just bear a, you know, a demeanor of arrogance uh, that looks down upon those who don't understand. Um, I think that once we have come to know the, the Word of God well, and the deeper that we enter into it, the more we become aware of how great is God and what a, what a gap there is between us and God, and how little gap there is between us and others. So I think um, what happened to the Pharisees in their arrogance uh, should have been a signal immediately that they were far off base, and I think we need to learn that as well. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With such a great response to the New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea tour so far, we want to encourage you to register as soon as you can if you're hoping to join us. 12 days, 8 by land, 4 by sea, visiting locations central to the New Testament church and Paul's missionary journeys. Plus the added bonus of visiting the island of Patmos, where the Apostle John received the revelation, and some of the most beautiful locations in the world, like the island of Santorini. All the while, you'll receive the biblical insights and teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, special events and activities that will include Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and special inspirational musical guests, Shane and Angela Weed. Now, the total of the guest spots is relatively small in order to maintain a tight, intimate group and the casual access to all of our special guests. So don't be disappointed. Call today and register for Back to the Bible Canada's New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea Tour. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca.